talk about today, I just pray you've come prepared to be um, challenged, encouraged, made to think, whatever, uh, because I know that you've been involved in a series, thinking about some of the big things that are happening in this changing world in which we live over the past few weeks, and how, how, do, we, how do we connect with them, how do we grapple with these things, how do we work these things through? And so what, what I want to talk about today, uh, I've, I've spoken with Pastor Paul about it, I didn't just want to come and just preach a sermon, I wanted to fit in with what you've been thinking about, sort of continue that through it and, and work it out. So what, what I thought, there's so many things in the world today, as we, we as Christians, we face and we think, man, these are just like big obstacles. Eh? How do, what do we do with these things? How do we work these things through? So what I'd like to talk about today is turning obstacles into opportunities. That's what I want to think about. How do we do that? How do we turn obstacles into opportunities? And uh, you see the, the scripture there, John 4, 1 to 42. I'm not going to read it all because of time. But that's the story when Jesus met the woman at the well. And if you know anything about that story, you'll know that Jesus met a woman at a well, um, and she was a Samaritan, and he was, he was a Jew, so they weren't supposed to talk to each other. <laughs> Obstacle straight away. And what happens in the story is that Jesus, through conversation with her and through what happens next, is that obstacle becomes a great opportunity, and Jesus turns the whole thing around. That's what happens in that story. And by the end of the story, the whole village is following Jesus. Now, I don't think I could say to you, I wish I could say to you, hey, what, listen to what I say, and by the time you've done, done what I said at the end of this sermon this morning, you'll go back to your town and every, everyone will become a Christian. I don't think I can say that. In fact, I can assure you, I can't say that. What I'd like to do, though, is to just give you some things to encourage and challenge you about how you, how I, could turn what seems so often like obstacles into opportunities. So that, so that we can see something different happen. Well, where I'd like to start, I'd like to think about our context, where, where, what's happened in the world, what, what is it like, really? And the way I'm going to do that, I want to start with this thing, um, if I put it up here, I call it the, uh, the swingometer of church influence. And what, this is, what I'm going to do for the first few minutes of this talk is just look a little bit about the world in which we have all these new questions and things and worldviews and things that people are dealing with, why is it that they're becoming so much more of a challenge for us to face? And some of it's technology, but others got nothing to do with technology. It's just the changing world in which we live. And whether we like it or not, it's happening. We can wish it weren't, but it is. It just is. And so this, this, this thing, the, the swingometer of church influence, I want to just go, go through this very quickly. Let me just talk about where I live. So I come from the United Kingdom. I live just to the east of London in a city called, well, just close to a city called Chelmsford in England. And in the last hundred years or so, what's happened in England, I'm going to now demonstrate with this very simple thing called the sphingometer. So a hundred years ago, in my country, 94% of people were churched. That's a lot of people. That's almost everybody. 94% of people. They weren't following Jesus necessarily. They wouldn't even have called themselves, they probably would have called themselves Christians, but they weren't dedicated. Many were, but many weren't. But they were churched. They knew the Bible, they knew, but they, they, they believed that there was a God, and they believed there was a heaven, they believed there was a hell, they believed there was a right way to live and a wrong way to live. That's just how they believed. That was their worldview, if you like. But over the last hundred years, that's swung. That's why I call it a sphingometer. Hey, look, no expense spared this morning in the presentation. If we just stop there for a second. Around the 1950s in England, so 60, 70 years ago now, it got down to about 50% were church. 54% is the figure they say. So from 94 to 54% are now churched. And then swing on to the, to the edge, and what you see when you get to the edge is it gets to what I call unchurched. I often think I should have put never churched there because there are people that have never been to church in their lives before. They don't know anything about it at all. They've never sung a hymn. 
They've never prayed a prayer. Well, they might have prayed a prayer, but not a real one, if you know what I mean. They've never heard a sermon. They've never read the Bible, never been to Sunday school, never done anything at all. They have no connection with anything to do with church at all. And now in England, where I live, what they say is the number of people that are churched is probably less than 4%. So from 94 across to 4% in the last 100 years or so. That's what's happened. Now, in, in the United States, where are you? Um, and I guess your country is so big and it's so varied. It's, it depends where you go. There are some places you go to in the United States where they, you're still very church. Lots of people still think about church. And they might even still go to church every now and then. Um, but you go to some parts and it's pretty much like the UK. And here's the thing which I want to suggest to you this morning. As we think about how do we connect with this world, here's a fact that I think is real. That your country, unfortunately, is becoming very much more like ours. The, the number of people that have no connection with church is getting greater and greater and greater. Do you agree with that? And the challenge for us as churches, what does that mean? As we think about these questions that people have and these lives that they're living... How do, how do we connect with these people and how do we actually help them to come to know who Jesus is? Because for so long, the way the church has done that is by having church and wanting, expecting people to come. That's been our model. We do church and people come to it. But increasingly what's happening is that picture is being shown. If I can go to the next slide and just go a little bit further. See, what the reason that's so important as we think about how do we connect with these people is that when, when the world was much more churched, when people went to church... And they, they believed things. What happened is the biblical worldview was kind of accepted. It was in the middle of society. In fact, many laws and things were based upon the Bible. And you know, if you go to a law court, you put your hand on the Bible and you, you swear on the Bible, don't you? Very often, all that kind of thing. S society had the Bible at its very center. So therefore, people believed that this was true. And if you didn't do this, you were stepping outside of the truth. This was the right way to live. If you didn't do it, you were living the wrong way. There was a kind of acceptance of that. that there was a right way to live, and it was God's way. And it, the good book, as people often call it, tells us what that way is. And if we do what it says, we're good. And if we don't, then we're actually disobeying that. That was the way people thought. Do you agree with that? The challenge is that what's happened now, and it's happening rapidly in your country, like it's happened in mine, is that the biblical worldview is no longer in the middle. It's been pushed to the edge. So some people still believe it, but most people don't believe that anymore. Most people think, oh, well, that's what you Christians believe. You believe that, I don't believe that. And so therefore, the way people think, the way that people behave, is no longer based upon what the Bible has to say. And they don't even think they're doing something wrong if they don't do what the Bible says. Does that make sense? They just think they're doing what they do. So some other things have come in. So here's one, atheism. A dominant thing in, the, in society now, is, for, mo for many people, where I live certainly, is atheism. Atheism means I don't believe in God. So, In fact, in our schools in England, they teach the theory of evolution as though it's a fact. That there isn't a God. That there is just this atheism thing. That's what they teach. Now, you can go to religious education classes, and then you can be taught that there might be a God, but you're just taught all kinds of religions. I'll come to that in just a second. But, but the, the, the way that people think, in fact, where I live, where, my, where Lynn and I live in the UK, the reality is that most people think like this. That if you're intelligent and educated, you don't believe in God. Belief in God is for people who aren't very intelligent or who need some kind of crutch. That's the way they think. And so therefore, 
the way that they think affects the way that they do things. There's a thing in England, called, they call it the Atheist Society. And a number of years ago, they had this big advertising campaign on all the red buses. You know that you've seen these red buses that cross the bridges in London? You must have seen pictures of them. Well, they, they, they had these big billboards on the buses that said, God probably doesn't exist, therefore enjoy yourself. That was their big campaign. And you see how atheism is connected to people's behaviour. If there's not a God, hey, do what you like. There's no consequences for it. And so it's not just they don't believe in God. What it means is by not believing in God, it opens the door to all kinds of possibilities just for how they live their lives. Because there's no right. There is no wrong. Related to that, and you know something about this here, is pluralism. And that's a fancy word. What it basically means is all kinds of different religions and ways that we think. They're all the same. They're all just equal to each other. So there's no one way. There's all kinds of ways. And it doesn't matter which way you choose. You can even choose bits of them if you like. Um, I was in Japan a few years ago, and in Japan, people are often born Shinto, get married as Christians, and die as Buddhists. Why not? Just give it a try. Just try which one ever, whichever one works. Now, that may not be the case here, but the, the reality is what lots of people do is they just take a bit of this and a bit of that and mix it all up, and as long as it works for them, that makes it okay. Can you see what I'm saying? What's happening with people the challenge of us sharing Jesus with them is we're no longer sharing Jesus with people who say, yes, I believe this is all true and I agree with it. We've got all this mixed up stuff going on. And then probably the greatest challenge is the last one of these, which is relativism. What does that mean? Well, relativism basically means there is no right, there is no wrong, I can do what I want. It's up to me. So we'll choose what we do. You might want to choose believing God, you can do that. You might want to choose to, to, to be someone that stays married to one person for your life. You can do all of that if you like, but as for me, I'm going to do what I like. Because it's relative. There's no, there's no absolute. It's down to each person to choose to live how they want to live. And then you begin to expand that further, and you begin to realize that that means that every single thing is possible for anybody to do exactly what they want. And it's not wrong, and it's not right, and it's not good, and it's not bad. They are just doing what they want to do. Now, you might say to me, if we were being very exact, you might say, well, actually, Dennis, where we live here, the atheism, the atheism one's not that big, and the relativism one might be big, or whatever, I don't know, but that just gives a picture. And if I were to ask you, which I'm not going to, if I were to say, get a pen, get a paper, and do that, and draw how big you think each circle is, you might even have slightly different ideas of how big they are, mightn't you? But the key is, I want to ask you this question, as we think about turning obstacles into opportunities, because this, this is the obstacle, largely, in many ways, and I'll come to some more in a second, but this is what we face. That the world in which we live is no longer the world that used to be. And we can either accept that and face it, or we can pretend it's not the case. And just hope that one day, everything will go back to being like it used to be. That they'll just stop AI. <laughs> you know, they'll stop all the things that Paul's, Pastor Paul's been talking about. That people will suddenly wake up one day and say, actually, do you know what? This lifestyle I've been living, I realise we've got to stop all of this stuff. And we've got to go back to being good Christians again. Wouldn't that be nice? But is that going to happen? I doubt it. Let me just go to the next slide, please. This... Um, I got this from a website. I just went onto Google, because you can find a lot on Google, can't you? And what did I type in? I put 1950s America road sign. And this came up. And I thought it was interesting. The 1950s American road sign just says one way. And in some ways, I thought that kind of illustrates also how Christian people, how America used to think about Christianity in the 1950s. There's one way to God. But of course, it's not like that anymore, as you'll see. 
And in fact, this next slide I'm going to show you, I think there's something very deep about it, and it's this. I think if you, a lot of people, if we think about how they live their lives today, they actually live them like this. There's just no, nothing pointing anywhere. There's nothing, there's no direction, there's nothing to follow. There's just, everybody is just doing their own thing, not knowing what it's for, what it's about, where it's going or anything. But they're just doing it because they can. And because they can, they want to, and because they want to, they will, and that's it. In many ways, this slide for me provides us with a great deal of hope. Because I don't know about you, but I find this. There were a lot of people, and I certainly find this among many, many more young people. A lot of them are saying, but there must be some meaning. There must be some purpose. There must be something. And I think what that means is a lot of younger people are beginning to look again, search for truth and search for real life. And friends, they have to find it in the church. A few, um, a few weeks ago, thanks to my dear wife, she, she's known that for a long time I've wanted, to do, I've wanted to go to visit the sites where people died during the First World War. I've always wanted to do it since I was about 10 years old, just to go there and pay my respect to those people. And she found on Facebook, wasn't it, a, a bike ride. I, I, I cycle. Um, so she said, you can cycle all, to all these different sites around um, northern France. All these, and I did it. And it was so moving. I, that's a whole other story, though. But while I was on this, this ride, which was nearly 200 miles, and I haven't got very long legs, um, while I was on this ride, I, I met all kinds of people. There were 55, 60 people doing this ride together with a thing called the Royal British Legion, which is a charity that looks after people in the armed forces in the UK. And I, met, I spoke to somebody, one guy I spoke to in particular, he said something which is really just challenging to me because he, we started talking, he found out I was a minister, although he didn't know what a minister was because he's, he's never been to church in his life. He's from the east end of London in England. And we started talking through and I said, do you believe in God? He said, no, I don't believe in God. He said, I'm, 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 no, I don't believe in God. I said, I said, what do you think? He said, well, he said, I don't know. He said, he said I've become a bit more spiritual lately. Um, he said, so I do spiritual, he said, but I don't do God. And I said, okay. I said, well, so you say you do spiritual, but don't do God. Um, what do you mean by all that? I said, when you look for this spiritual reality that you're looking for, where, 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 where do you look? And this is what he said, and this is challenging. He said, the last place I would look for a spiritual encounter with God is the church. That's terrible, isn't it? Now, he wasn't being against it. That was just his way of thinking that that's the last place he would ever look would be the church. Let me just go on. Let me just jump another slide or two, can I? Let me just flick on. I want to just show you, if we can get back to the slides, please. I want you to just see this quote here. There's two quotes I want to show you. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. I think that's a great description of my country. And I, th I think it's becoming a more accurate description of your country as well. Just to prove to me that you're still there, do you believe that? Do you agree with that quote? Can you say it? You say yes, I can hear you. Yeah, because I think I really want this to. I want this to really feel this stuff because it's really important we understand where we are if we're going to really overcome the obstacles. Um, and then there's another one, another quote, which is a bit more complicated. I'm going to, simp I'm going to read this and then simplify it. In a consumer society where the freedom of every citizen to express his or her personal preferences is taken as fundamental to human happiness. Whether this personal preference is in respect of washing powder or sexual behavior, it would be natural to conclude that adherence to the Christian tradition is also simply an expression of personal preference. In other words, so let me explain what that means. For most people, they see us choosing Jesus just like they see them choosing their washing powder. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? 
They don't see it as this great truth that we've discovered. They just think, oh, there's those, there's those religious people doing their religion. Um, and we don't do it. We do whatever else it is that we do instead. And so I wanted to set the context. I wanted to lay that foundation. Because the reality is, if we're going to be, if the, if the church, if us as followers of Jesus are really going to help people to understand the truth, I still believe that the Bible is the truth. Now, I don't, that, for me, that doesn't change. But we have to recognize that we can't start at that place with most people that we talk with. We can't start there and say, the Bible says, because they say, well, I don't care what the Bible says. And that's the reality that we have to face. That's we have to live. So let me, let me just go through a few things with you. I want to start and say, how do we then, how do we overcome the obstacles and turn those obstacles into opportunities so that we can reach people in a world like this? Now, do you have an appetite for that? Is anyone, anyone you, you still going to come with me on this journey? Or are you wishing that I hadn't come to here and I stayed at home in England? Well, let me, let me, let me the first one, the first of these obstacles... Um, you won't, you won't find this one very, very nice, I'm afraid, but I'm afraid it's just, it is what it is, I think, in my opinion. As I, as I prayed into this and thought, I tracked a bit of what Pastor Paul has been teaching, where it's going, and thought, how do I say something of use to conclude that in a way? The first one, I'm going to put it up here, is, is me. I think the biggest obstacle to us reaching the world often is me. When I say me, I, I mean me, but I also mean me. Lots of me's. You me, if you know what I mean. That so often the way it comes is when we look at this world and we see it changing and we see all these great big things coming along, these, these new ways of living, the way people live their lives, the questions they have, the choices they make, the decisions they make about how they're going to live. And you can often, some of them, if we're honest about it, we look at these people and think, I don't, I, I don't even want to be anywhere near those people. I don't want to talk to those people. I want to stay away from those people. These people disgust me. These people annoy me. These people aggravate me. These people are just horrible. They're the lost, rotten people. Do you ever find, can we be honest with each other? Can we just pretend we're sitting down just one-on-one -on -one for a moment? Do you ever find yourself thinking that way about people? That you look at them and think, I don't, I don't want to be in it. Do you, do, you, do you ever do that or is it just me? And you look and you can just see by the way they dress, the way they act, the way they look, whatever, you can just see that there are people that are not living to put it simply, they're not living the kind of life that God would actually want them to live. Do you ever look at people like that and actually feel disgusted, angry, annoyed, upset? Do you ever feel that? I suggest we probably do because I think it's quite natural for us to feel that way. I think that's a natural response to what, to, especially when we love God and love his truth and love his word and love everything else that he's about. It's very natural for us to look at these people and think, ah. But the challenge is this, that if we think that way, what do we do? We then stay away from these people, don't we? We come back and we step away and we leave them in their darkness. That's what we do so easily. Years ago, we, we did, I mentioned I lead this ministry called The Rooftop. And years ago, we did a thing, we call it a rooftop encounter. We take people to a rooftop. You've done it here. We've done it on the roof here. Some of you have been involved. You go to a rooftop, you look out across the community and say, Jesus, help us to see what you see. And we did this, and we were in, in, a, in actually in a swimming pool on top of a hotel. And the, there, was a, there was a waterfall in this swimming pool, so it was quite hard to hear each other speaking. And then what happened is we were looking out from this swimming pool. You could, oh, there's all these glass windows around it. A storm went by, and all the windows steamed up. So here we were on a rooftop looking out across the city to see what God was doing and to talk to each other about it. We couldn't hear each other, and we couldn't see, which was actually quite a challenge. And then what happened after we did it, we came down from the rooftop. 
went to a room in a church building to talk about what had happened on the rooftop. And I thought, this is going to be terrible because no one could see or hear anything. Um, and then one lady stood up. I said, what happened on the rooftop? And she stood up and she said, she said, as I was looking out across the city, I couldn't see anything except that all the window was steamed. And as I looked into the window, all I could see was my face. I could see myself looking back at me. And she said, as I, as I saw that, God spoke to me and said, that's the problem. You never see things that I see. You just see yourself. And that was so deep. Because people, as, as she said, that everybody realized we're all like that. Aren't we like that? The first thing we ever think about is me. And even as Christians who we're saved and we get filled with the Holy Spirit, I find that it's still so easy to put me first all the time. Do you? Me, me, me. It's all about me. And I don't say this to criticize anything about what I've heard this morning here or anywhere else I go, but I do often find in churches these days a lot of songs are about me. There's a very me-centered factor, a lot of worship I find in many churches these days. Am I being unkind saying that? But I just think that somehow, that my, as you saw the slide I showed, in this consumer-driven world, how the world outside can often just see churches, what those people do. If we're not careful, if we go too far along the me line, that's where we end up. And so I think we have to really grapple with that and think about that. If we're going to really see a change in this world, if we're going to see things become different, one of the obstacles that we have to overcome is me. Um, and that overcoming me actually is about coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, touch my heart, break my heart, help me to see people as you see them. And I, and I want to encourage you to think about that for just for a moment, to actually think about the people that you know in your life, in your community, in your world, in your family even, are there people in those zones of your life where your natural response is to want them to go away and so you can be distant from them? Or you'll talk to them if they change and become like you think they should be. Is that? I want to just say this to you. That's a natural response. But if we're going to see these people change, then something supernatural has to happen. And we need to ask God to change me. Number two, second thing, which is a continuation of me, us, the church, together. See, here's the challenge. Because the church is a collective of me's that become an us, when we all gather together, there's lots of me's. And so all that me-ism can become an us-ism. Does that make sense? So we're all gathered together thinking this way. And so when we're together, that's how we think. It's not just how I think. It's how we can think as well. And so what happens is that we can very easily actually become church that rather than being in Philippians 2, have we got this scripture, Philippians 2? Do we have that in Philippians? Yeah, in Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And in Philippians 2, what Paul is talking about, what he's saying there is this corrupt, depraved world. Are we supposed to just retreat from it and let all the corruption stay like it is? Or are we supposed to shine like stars? And what he's saying is that if we actually do become the people that God wants us to become, we will shine like stars in this world. And then the darkness will see the light. But if the light, and this is tragic really, Jesus said in the Gospels, you are the light of the world. And what did he say after that? You'll know what he said. He said, a light does not what? It doesn't hide itself. It doesn't put a shade over itself. It doesn't do it in secret. It doesn't do it behind the closed walls. It does it in public. 
what he's basically saying is this. If we want to see a world which is confused and so messed up with all these things, if they're going to see the truth, how will they ever see the truth if us just celebrate the truth behind closed doors? And that, not only that, but the attitude as well that comes with it. So let me tell you a story which I find very powerful and very moving. Um, and it's a story about a, a building, a church. I'm going to show you their building. Um, this is a church building in England. It's called Hereford Baptist Church. The reason it's called Hereford Baptist Church is because it's a church, it's a Baptist one, and it's in the city of Hereford. Now, we know how to name churches in my country. We're very, very creative. Hereford Baptist Church. I'm going to tell you this story quickly. I could take a long time, but I'll give you the quicker version of it. A number of years ago, in Hereford, it's a market town in England, Hereford, and all around it there are villages. And a number of years ago, my wife and I were talking in the break between the two services, because I mentioned this in the first one, and she said to me, she said, I think it was longer ago than you said, and I think you're right. Do you find as you get older, you just lose any track of how long ago things were? So I think it was over 20 years ago this began. I said 15 years in the first service. But, but what happened was this. Hereford Baptist Church building, there it is. And 20 years or so ago, um, the, the local authority, they put some bus stops outside of this building. And not, what that meant was these bus stops they put outside of these buildings, this is what happened. In this market town called Hereford, all around it are all these villages, and what happened was, as well as putting the bus stops outside of Hereford Baptist Church, they also opened a nightclub in the, in the town as well. And it meant this, on Saturday nights, young people, hundreds of them from all the villages around, were getting buses going to this nightclub, getting completely wasted on alcohol and stuff, and doing things, I'm not going to be too graphic here, you, you can use your imagination, doing things together that we would as Christians not think that people should be doing. Can I put it, you understand what I'm saying? And after all of that, maybe, I don't know, 2 a.m. in the morning, they would come to the bus stop to get the bus back to the villages. And the bus stop was outside of Hereford Baptist Church's building. So when they got there, about 2 a.m., whatever time they came, you can see there's a little walkway down the side of the building. That was their bathroom. People just used it to go to the toilet. Also, and I can see there are some younger children here, so I'm going to be careful here, but they used the area at the front there and down the side to have pleasure with one another, if I can put it as simply as that. And that, when they'd finished having their pleasure and gone on the buses and gone home, you can imagine when people came to church Sunday morning, they had those evidence of their pleasure and all the other things they'd done left around. So these Baptists were not very pleased about this because people aren't supposed to behave this way, and they're right. So they had a church meeting to decide, what are we going to do about this? What do we do? And they, they had this big church meeting. All the members came together to vote on what their action should be to get over this problem, this obstacle. And there were two possibilities, two solutions. Number one, they would write to the bus company and tell them to move the bus stop. Move it down the street. Get rid of it. Number two, they would write to the local authority and get them to close down the nightclub. And then the young people wouldn't be coming to the town doing all these things outside of their building. There wasn't a number three, that was it, one or the other. And so then what happened was, and the lady who told me this story is the lady that's in the story. So this is what she told me, because she was this lady. What happened was she was in this church meeting. She's a lady in, in her 60s, so she's 60-something years old. In England, we're not allowed to call people old because it's politically incorrect. So people who are older, we call them chronologically advanced. 
thought you'd like to know that. She's, she, she stands up while all this is going on. She, she felt she had to stand up and say something. And she stood up and she said, could I, could I ask a question? Could I say something? And the chairman said, yes, of course. What would you like to say? And she said, we're talking about moving these bus stops or closing down the nightclub. But haven't we been praying for years that God would send us young people? Why? Why are we praying they will go away? And then she asked the question. This wasn't because, remember those bracelets people used to wear with WWJD on them? What would Jesus do? She wasn't a bracelet wearer. But she just asked the question, what, what would Jesus do? How would he respond to this? Surely his response wouldn't be to get rid of the problem. Surely he would see this as a great opportunity for us to reach these people. So why don't we instead, why don't we open the building at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning and rather than these young people using the, the church wall as a toilet, they can come in and use the toilets. And why don't we serve them tea and coffee and make cakes? In England, chronologi chronologically advanced ladies make great cakes. I'm sure younger ones do as well, but why don't we make cakes for them? Why don't we celebrate the fact that these young people are here? Why don't we connect with these people? And she said, this was the most important thing, I'll do it. And then two other ladies about the same age stood up and said, we'll do it as well. So three ladies did it. No men to begin with. And they began to do that week after week. Every week they were there. They began to call the thing night shift. Night shift is the name. And it's still going now, 20 years later. It's still happening in the church. But what happened was this. That as they began to do this and connect with these young people, these young people loved the fact they were doing it. They were so grateful. They thought this was wonderful. These Christians were being kind and welcoming and giving them a toilet to use and so on and so on. Other people got involved. They began to talk about their problems and their issues. And some of these young people came to know Jesus. And, and, and are still helping other young people to come to know Jesus all these years on, you see. Now, I could go into a lot more detail in that story, but let me just say this. You see, what, what happened? What was the difference? What changed it was when us, we, the church, recognized that we're not the place where just the good people go and we, all the good people go into a place and close the world outside and celebrate Jesus in, in here. Do you see what I'm saying? It's when we recognize that us are people who are forgiven sinners just like everybody else is with good news to share and we ask the question, not how do we disconnect, but how do we connect with the world in which we're placed, so that we can bring good news to people who are sinners, just like us. You see, here's the dilemma, here's the, here's the crux of it all, that when we look at these people that we so, so easily, so naturally disapprove of, and quite rightly in some ways can disapprove of because of their lifestyle choices, what we have to put next to that is, is the reality that God loves these people and wants them to be changed. And we can either choose to join him in that mission or we can choose to not and just say, no, Lord, you, 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 you sort them out. I'm, I'm, I'm staying away from them. Number three, because of time rushing on. Number three, I'll be very quick on this one. Them. I just want to make one quick point about them. I could spend a lot longer on this, but here's the reality. I put it like this quite simply. Many of these people, them out there, they're not people that have actually rejected God or turned away from Jesus or anything. They're people who by and large, have no idea about what they're doing. They're just living life as they think life can be lived. Now, I, we could spend hours on that. I want to say one quick thing under this heading before I get to the last one and tell one final story. And it's this. In, in John chapter 4, 
it says this wonderful thing. I just think I really want us to get a hold of. If we could just go. It says in John 4, verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So I make one point under this, which I think is really key in terms of how do we turn these obstacles into opportunities. See, here's the reality. If you look at the map, to go from where Jesus was to where he was going, he didn't have to go through Samaria. So if you look at, if you look at the geography of it, it says he, if you look at it, he didn't. He could have got from A to B without going through Samaria quicker. So the had to is what the theologians, the clever people would call a divine imperative. He had to go through Samaria because there was something God wanted him to do, not because he had to go there to get where he was going. Does that make sense? And so the purpose of that is to reach them, he had to go to them. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He he went to them. And I just want to say that in terms of us, this is the challenge, I think, that we've really got to get a hold of. And I'll go to my last point in a second. That these thems, and you may, you may I, I, in some ways I know I'm treading on thin ice here. I do know that, and I want to do it carefully. Because you could say, well, actually, Dennis, these people, these them, they're all bad people, they're terrible people, they're under God's wrath and God's judgment. Yes, but doesn't the Bible tell us that there's good news? <laughs> And doesn't the Bible tell us that the, the, the love of God is great? And doesn't the Bible tell us that actually every time a sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven? Doesn't it tell us all those great things? That it's not God's will that any of these people should perish. We can't just sit in the light hidden. We need to take the light to the people where they are. And that means we say, well, not just therefore, it would be great if people could come to church or even come to me. But actually what we should be asking is how do we go to them? So if I were to, it says there, that Bible verse that he had to go through Samaria. What about, how, how could that relate to us in our lives? Where do we have to go to? Where do we have to step outside of the natural so that we would actually connect with people that we wouldn't naturally go to? But we will say, Lord, as hard as this is, I'm going to trust you and go. So the final thing I want to talk about just briefly is go. So me, us, them, and then finally this little word go I want to think about. Go and engage with people. And again, I'm going to do it by telling stories. I didn't want to lay too much heavy stuff on us this morning because I think the subject enough makes us think a lot. So I wanted to use stories primarily and illustrations of people I've met just to give us a picture of what this can look like. And I think one, this, this last story I'm going to tell you, I think has got a lot of, lot of challenge built into it. But I think if we were just grasp with it and re, re, really grapple with what it's about... It could be something which helps us to do something not the same but similar. So here's a situation. It's a live story. I'm going to show you a picture. Here it is. That place that that's a picture of is called The Bank. It's in Virginia Beach. And it's a place where most weekends about a thousand or so young people, mainly military people, go to drink, to dance, to meet each other and to do the things that young people do. So it's not a, it's not a church worship gathering. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a bar, a big bar. Um, and, and the reason I show it is because a friend of mine, a pastor, his name is Pastor Bubba, he, he calls himself. He decided a number of years ago that he wanted to reach the people who were living the kind of lives that God doesn't want them to live. And he recognized that one of the places to do that was in the bank, this place. So he started going there. Um, the church he was pastor of didn't approve. They said he didn't, they did, some of them didn't approve. They thought he should, a pastor shouldn't be in a bar. Pastors are supposed to be in the church, not in the bar. Interesting, isn't it, when you look at Jesus and see where he spent most of his time. But he went and he started going there. And, and what he would do is he would sit there with a Diet Coke and a big hat. He wears a big hat. 
It's one of these great big things. He's got a big head as well. He's got a bald head as well, but it's bigger than mine. And he would sit there and, he, and talk to people. Now, I went with him one time, and this is the two things I observed when I went with him. So I saw this when I went with him. Number one was this. He would just sit there with his Diet Coke on the table. And throughout the few hours that we were there, dozens of young people, one by one, would just come and they would sit and talk to him. And he would listen to their problems, talk about their needs, their lifestyle choices, things they were doing that were wrong, their addictions, their guilt, all this stuff. He would just sit and talk to them. And in the time that he went, went there, I think in the six months from when he first went to when I went with him, I think he had led 18 young people to Christ. And these were people that would never be coming to a church, ever. The other thing that was interested me was I spoke to the owner. One time I was standing next to the owner at the door and there was Bubba sitting talking to these people. And I said to him, I said, I'm just interested. I'm British and you're not, so we're different. I just wondered, how do you feel about a pastor being in your bar? Do you want a pastor in your bar? <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me he said, I love him being here. He said, because when he's here, the people behave themselves better. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What did Jesus talk about being salt and light, didn't he? And you see the point? When the pastor's here, they behave better. And the point, the reason I tell that is because, you see, by going into dark places where people are living lives that are not the kind of lives God wants them to be living, we're going to see change happen. We're going to see transformation happen. If we disapprove and disconnect from all these bad things that happen in the world and just stay in the church and celebrate the truth and the light that we have, isn't it likely that's just going to get darker and darker and darker? So here's my challenge to you, friends, and I say this as a friend. I think what we have to do if we're going to really be about the things that God is about, each of us in our own individual way, we don't have to necessarily go to the bar or whatever, but every one of us, whatever age we're at, whatever place in life we're at, we're all surrounded by some people who, if we're honest about it, we don't approve of the way they live and we don't necessarily agree with what they're doing and it would be easier for us to disconnect from them and leave them to it. Or we could say, God, you love these people. As unlovely as they may be, you love them. Just like God, as unlovely as I am, you love me. And you could decide, we could decide to continue. I'm not saying that this church is doing nothing, by the way. Don't get me wrong at all. What I'm saying is that for each of us, we can make a decision today that says in this world filled with so much confusion and darkness and sin and everything else, I'm going to step out and say I want to be someone that God can use to make a difference. And it starts just by connecting with somebody in your world. So would you stand up please? Would you mind standing? just take a moment as you stand to um, just think about what, what you've heard and I, I often find this when you listen to a sermon for 30 minutes or so a lot of it you don't hear all of it but there's, there's a part of it that often connects you think ah that's the that's the bit that God wanted me to get and as you listen to God's voice not mine but God's voice having spoken to you just take a moment to talk to God just quietly as you're standing just talk to God and respond to him in your own way from your heart about what you feel it is that he said to you this morning. Would you just do that for a moment?
And now I'd like to challenge you, every one of you here. I know that often in a church building on a Sunday gathering, we, we ask people to come to the front for, to become a Christian often. And I, of course, that invitation is there for anyone here this morning. But as well as that, it's good to have other opportunities to come to the front sometimes as well to respond and say yes to God. And I'd like to give all of you an opportunity this morning. Some of the pastors at the front will, will come to the front and pray with you. But if you are standing there, and I hope this is many of you, and saying, yes, Jesus, I do want to be the answer to the questions that these people have. I do want to make Jesus known. I want to make you known, Jesus, to the people around me. I want to be willing to do that. I'd like to ask you just to come. Leave where you're standing. Just come to stand at the front. And then some pastors, and probably I'll pray with you too. So rather than staying where you are, as a step of obedience, I guess, I'll just ask any of you now, just come, would you just come and stand at the front here so we can pray with you. And even those of you at the back, it's not that far. You can come too. Father God, for each person that has stepped out this morning, come to stand at the front here, and for many that haven't, but are standing where they are and thinking the same thing, I pray for each of them, Lord, specifically, that you will help them to to trust you enough to turn the obstacles that are just so obvious into opportunities. I pray, Lord, as they think about people in their lives, who they just don't know how to, to talk to or connect with or even begin a conversation with. I pray for them, Lord, if they have attitudes and things in their own life which cause them to, to not see people like you do, but to be judgmental or whatever, Lord. I just pray for each person that's come forward. I pray, God, that whatever obstacles and barriers there are to them being light shining in a dark place I pray God that you will help them to overcome those obstacles not Lord for their own sake but for the sake of those people that you love that you came to seek and to save and we pray because of what you do in each of us that there will be rejoicing in heaven 
in the name of Jesus. Amen. You give life.